Our scripture reading tonight will be from the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk, excuse me. Originally, I was just going to be reading from 1 Corinthians. That's a lot easier to say. This will be chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. If you're reading from the Red Pew Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, that'll be on page 786. This is a short verse, but very important as we're entering into this service. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It doesn't feel correct to use the old cliche, there aren't enough words to describe. But that truly is from our hearts. There are not enough words to describe our thanks and gratitude for this congregation. You are our primary supporter. We have other supporters in Texas and Tennessee and Alabama, but it's upon you whom we depend, and we're very thankful for your support in the Lord's work, for your gifts. We're thankful so much for that. We're very appreciative. And of course, the glory goes to God. We will finish school in June, June the 21st. Every year it goes back a little bit further. I don't know why. It couldn't be a week earlier, but now we're a week later. So we're full extent, the last part of June, we'll finish school. We very quickly will move to the area of Willette, Tennessee. It is between Nashville and Knoxville, about 15 minutes from the Kentucky border. The elders of the Willett congregation have the oversight of India mission work in the southern central part of India. There are several states and several cities. If I begin to try to explain all that, it would confound me and it may confound you. The coordinator of that work has been involved in the work for 23 years. My parents have been blessed to be involved with the work since 2002, having traveled there several times. The coordinator says, I'm tired and I'm ready to retire. So they are beginning to look for someone to replace him, and I'm going to take that job on. We will not live in India. We will travel there once, maybe twice a year, a group of men. Women traveled before, and it's not unsafe for women to travel, but it is a little, um, a little restrictive for women because of the culture there. So there have been some women that have traveled, or primarily men. In January, eight men will travel, and they'll split up. They'll do street preaching, they will do village preaching. They will go to schools of preaching and to uh, a lectureship, we may call it. My father will ride horseback into a jungle village. He's very excited about that. He's very excited because in all the years that he's gone, he's never been able to ride a horse into a village. They've, they've gone to some far out places, but to ride a horse. Please pray for me if I ever have to ride a horse <laughs> into a village. I know that I'll make it trusting in the Lord. He's blessed the work. You'd be surprised. I don't have time to share all the information with you, but you'd be surprised. 85% of those who are converted to Christ remain faithful. And we're talking about a span of 20 years the study has been done by the good brethren over there. 85%. If we could retain 85% of the converts in the United States, if we could retain... 55%. I don't know what the numbers are in America, but 
they're staggering. We're losing our young people, as mentioned this morning in Bible class, and that's not our sermon this evening. But I wanted to let you know a little bit about the work and what we'll be doing. We ask for your prayers as we enter into that work. I'll go to India in July, right after the 4th of July, to go visit the work, and then we'll begin a year yeah, I guess you'd call it apprenticeship. We'll be working with the coordinator and his wife, learning how to do everything. And after a year, he says, see ya. And it's all on us. There's a song in the songbook here, song number 28. The Lord is in his holy temple. And I know that you've probably sang that song before. It sometimes is classified as a camp song. Or maybe sometimes it is a song that the song leader will lead in between the announcements and the worship assembly. Because it's a very sombering very sobering, very respectful song. And it's very simple. It's the scripture reading, Habakkuk 2.20. For the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In my mind forever, I thought that song, that, that verse, this song is about understanding we're here to worship God. And that we are to respect God and we are to honor him and give him all that is due to him. And that is true. But if you've ever studied Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.20 goes a lot further than that. There's certainly nothing wrong with saying we need to understand we are in the presence of God and that we are to worship God reverently according to the way He's asked for us to do. I know in Bible class this morning, if you were in here, if not, I'll let you know what the brother shared. He talked about emotions in worship. And we are to have emotions in worship. It is not supposed to be a mechanical thing that we just come and we sit down and, okay, we're going to sing a few songs, say a prayer, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to study for a little while and go home. It's not about that. There has to be emotions. We are to be reverently serving God. With excitement, with joy, we come to worship God. And many times, the joy that we've learned was taught to us by our parents because our parents, our grandparents, our friends, our family have taught us God is to be respected. Habakkuk 2.20 is not about respecting God in worship per se. Well, let's look at Habakkuk and let's find out about this verse and how we may appreciate God's blessings for us and His promise to us. Habakkuk was the one word in our Bible books of the Bible test that I could never spell right. I could get all of the other words, but that one Habakkuk. And so I had to remember H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K. I had to say it really fast. Habakkuk. It's not a book that you probably talk about on a regular basis. It's very unique in that it is a minor prophet. And I think that term is misleading. We use the term because it is shorter. It is a shorter record from a prophet. And of course, the major prophets are longer. But you think about that in our society, in our time, if we say something, oh, it's just a minor problem, then it's not that big of a deal and easy to overcome. If we say something is a major problem, whew, let's take a step back. Or if we talk about the minor leagues in baseball, well, he just didn't make it to the major leagues. Well, that's great that he played in the minor leagues, but the major leaguers, that's the signature, the autograph, the picture that you want. So sometimes our use of words major and minor are misleading, but Habakkuk is not minor in importance. It is unique in that it is a correspondence between Habakkuk and God. See, the other prophets are written 
to the individuals, whether to Israel in the north, the ten tribes that will be taken away by the Assyrians, or to Judah in the south that will be taken away by the Babylonians. There were letters, there were messages that God gave his prophets to the people. But Habakkuk is different in that it's Habakkuk questioning God. Open your Bibles, look at Habakkuk chapter 1, just to get a background and understand what's going on. Habakkuk chapter 1. It doesn't tell us a lot about Habakkuk. We don't know very much. We know about the time frame, and we know what other prophets he also worked along beside, but we don't know a whole lot of Habakkuk about him. Look at verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. That word burden doesn't mean it's a burdensome thing. It was very difficult and hard. That means an oracle or a solemn judgment. Habakkuk has a question. See, he knows because God's given him the message that the Babylonians are coming. The Chaldeans, it's used here, verse 6. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. The Babylonians are coming. They are going to destroy God's people that dwelt in the south, Judah. Judah had lasted longer than Israel because Judah actually had some kings that were faithful to God. That they had been warned by other prophets and they had been told, Judah, one day you're going to be taken away into captivity. You're going to be punished for your wrongdoing. Habakkuk is the prophet that is supposed to deliver the message to Judah. So he asked, O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save? Why, Lord, are your people going to suffer? Why is it that you're going to send this people, this heathen people, this unrighteous people to destroy or to, ca to take away your people into captivity? That's the question. And I believe uh, that's an appropriate question, a natural question that we may ask. Why, God, are you going to send the Babylonians to take away your people, your very people? Habakkuk knew. The prophets known. They had the word of Moses. They could read. They knew the Messiah was coming. They knew if they read Genesis 49 and verse 10, the scepter would not depart from Judah. The rule, the power was going to remain there. They knew about the promise to Abraham that through thy seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. So what's going to happen, Lord? You're going to send the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to destroy, to take away your people into captivity? He's not in trouble with God. God doesn't get on to him. God answers his questions. And his concern in verses 1 through 4, beginning in verse 5, Behold ye, among the heathen, Behold ye among the heathen in regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe, though it be told you. It's coming, Habakkuk. The Babylonians are coming. In your time, you will see it. It's going to be a mighty work. And see, God is not limited by our understanding of our limitations. Could you, with a snap of a finger, direct a whole nation to do your will? Not even the President of the United States can do such. He has to go through certain channels before something can happen that he desires. Habakkuk knew, though, if God says a nation's going to come and take my people away, that it was going to happen. God's not limited in that sense. That if he wants to send the unrighteous Babylonians to do his will, so be it. Think for just a moment. Throughout the Bible, how many times was God's will performed 
or was God's will promoted and so that things continued the way God wanted it because some evil person or evil people had a part in it. Think about Egypt. The Bible tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Bible tells us that Aaron hardened his heart, that Moses hardened his heart, that his own magicians hardened his heart, that God hardened his heart. There were 10 plagues performed. The 10th plague, of course, being the death of the firstborn. And so the Pharaoh finally said, go. And they gave them gold and they made them rich. And they were told to leave. How many times in the Old Testament did Moses and the prophets remind the people, do not forget what God did for you in Egypt. Actually, some of the minor prophets even said, remember Egypt? You're going to Egypt. And they say that, and of course, in a figurative sense. They're not literally going to Egypt, but they're going into captivity. It was a big deal. God performed these works, these things upon a heathen people to show His people His will. Think about the Assyrians. They took away the northern tribes. The Babylonians are going to take away the southern tribes. Think about in the New Testament. The single person who did the most egregious thing for 30 pieces of silver. It was prophesied. The psalmist wrote that another would take his place. There is a psalm that I believe is specifically related to Judas and his attitude and then Christ and his suffering. Judas fulfilled the will of God. Not because God made him. Not because God put something in his mind and said, you're going to do it beyond your control. He made that choice on his own. He didn't know necessarily he was going to make it until he kept the bag. And he didn't like it. That money was going where he didn't want it to go. And so it was set in his heart to betray the Christ. But he fulfilled God's plan. See, had he not hung himself on the cross, the very individual he sold for 30 pieces of silver was going to die for his sin and the sin of those who would say, crucify him, crucify him. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to do something. God's going to use them to bring this upon Judah. In verse 12, the correspondence now changes back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk asked some questions. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. Again, Lord, you're our heavenly Father. You're our God. You're from everlasting. Your people cannot die. You can't do this to us. He continues in verse 12. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. The Chaldeans. See, God's people weren't completely innocent, but do you ever see two things and say, well, that one's a lot worse than this other is? Don't we think that way in politics when it's time to vote? Don't we look at politicians that way? Well, they all seem to be liars, and this guy, he didn't follow what he said he was going to do, but it's better than this other. That's the mindset of Habakkuk. But God, you're sending this nation, of all nations, you're sending this heathen nation to come and to take away your people? God, you can't look on iniquity. So why are you doing this? Verse 13, Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth? The man that is more righteous than he. He has questions. 
God doesn't immediately respond here. Man's divided chapters up. Chapter 2, it continues. He's waiting and he's watching. As was mentioned this morning with the wise men, they were men who sought truth. They were men when they were shown truth, they pursued it. Sometimes we need to wait, don't we? Sometimes we need to wait. We need to have trust in God and to wait. Habakkuk didn't complain. He didn't say, well, forget God. His message is not true. God responds to him not by speaking to him, but by a vision. Verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Then verse 4 is unique. It's a verse that I know you've heard before. Maybe you've seen it in Habakkuk. Maybe you've studied Habakkuk. But it appears three times. It's referenced three times in the New Testament. Look at Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. Romans 1 verse 17. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 4. Galatians 3 and verse 11, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Hebrews 10 verse 38, some would say Paul also quoted Habakkuk 2.4. The Hebrew writer quotes, the just shall live by faith. God's people would be taken away into captivity, but there would be a remnant. There was always a remnant, was there not? Sometimes we forget when we study the Old Testament, maybe even the New Testament, but especially the Old Testament. Remember the wilderness wanderings? Remember there were two people that were faithful, Joshua and Caleb? Joshua and Caleb had been faithful. Who went up on part of the mount with Moses when he received the Ten Commandments? Go back and read and look at the names. Who was there with him? I think sometimes I forget, maybe we all forget, that there were people that were faithful. There was a remnant. Are we the remnant today to continue doing God's will and serving Him? Are we living by faith and not by sight? Because see, if we live right now and we look at things that are around us right now, we don't look forward, we don't look by faith to the spiritual, and we get stuck in the physical and we're distracted by the things that are around us. Maybe that's what was happening to Habakkuk. His mind was on death and destruction and carrying away, and no one would dwell in the land, the land of promise, the land the seed would come from, the Messiah is supposed to come from Judah, but Judah's about to be taken away. In chapter 2, there are five woes. There are five woes. I want to briefly look at these five woes, and then we'll conclude with verse 20. And understanding the significance, it's not just a verse that helps train our mind to understand we're worshiping God reverently. The first woe is found in verse 6. What God presents to Habakkuk now is information about the Babylonians. And he tells them about the Babylonians and he reassures him, Woe to the Babylonians. I've not overlooked, Habakkuk, I've not overlooked the Babylonians. I know exactly what they've done. Verse 6, Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeneth, ladeneth himself with thick clay. Have you ever had anyone take advantage of you? Maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but somebody took advantage of you at work. 
they used you to move up in the business or to get credit for something that you had worked hard for. It happens. But the Christian doesn't hold on to those things and, and hold a grudge against people. But are we not used sometimes? Are we not taken advantage of? We're not just talking about the elderly people who, who receive a phone call and they're threatened that their grandchild needs help. Please send money or they're not going to be able to get out of prison. That happened to Emily's grandmother. She was smart enough to know. But are not people taken advantage of? That's a concern. You're going to send Babylonians. They're going to take advantage. They're going to take things that doesn't belong to them. But look at verse 8. Because thou hast spoiled many nations... All the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. See, there was going to come a time, yes, Babylonia was going to come. They were going to take over the land. They were going to spoil the land, but they were going to be punished also. Does God use the Babylonians? Does He use an unrighteous people to perform His will and then excuse them and say everything's okay? Absolutely not. Look at verse 9. Here's the second woe. Woe to him that covereth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set, it set his nest on high, and that he, may, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. You ever met someone before who felt they were just so much better than everyone else? They esteemed themselves so much higher. Hopefully we're not like that. Hopefully we have the attitude of Jesus. We are very humble and we put others first. But are there not people that are like that? That you and I have to put up with? People who would mock what we do because you're just Bible thumpers. Or you don't have emotion. And so you're so legalistic. You stick so strictly to the Bible. And they feel like they're so much better than we are. Sometimes that can be a temptation. Why, why am I doing this? They seem to enjoy life. They seem to have everything so great. They're not really better. Look at verse 11. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Even the very houses they would build. To think they were so much better than everyone else. To think they were going to come and spoil God's people, and they were going to benefit from it. But the very stones and the walls would cry out against them. There would be judgment upon those who would take advantage and on those who would think they were so much better than, esteem themselves higher than others. The third woe in verse 12. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establish a city by iniquity. Verse 13. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? It's interesting to think of building a structure in a fire. But that's the way God describes it. They're going to build and think that they have done something great. They think they're going to establish themselves as a nation and they're going to continue to spread. But God says it's as if they were building in a fire. How successful would that be? To build something in a fire. Fire is meant to destroy, not to establish and strengthen and to build up a structure. Verse 14, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There would be a witness. He's using this in a figurative sense. The earth would see and know. People are going to see. The nations round about are going to see that the Babylonians will not last for very long. The fourth woe, verse 15. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, and puttest thy bottle to him, 
and makest them drunken also that thou mayest look on their nakedness. That's what, Babylonian, that's what the Babylonians were going to do. They were going to mock the Israelites. They were going to force them to drink and cause them to be in shame. God doesn't speak about the mind or the action of the Israelites. He only speaks about those of the Babylonians, that they would take advantage to the point that they would cause them to be drunk and to face shame and nakedness. This could be figurative language. It, it may mean that they're literally going to make them drunk. Or it could be that they were going to go to the full extent to embarrass someone, to where it was beyond their control. We can imagine a drunk in the embarrassment, lying in their vomit, soiling themselves, stumbling around not knowing where they are, their name, and the shame that's involved in that. And then that's what Babylonia was going to do, the Babylonians would do. But look at verse 16. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. Let your nudity, your nakedness, your shame be shown. The cup of the Lord's right hand. I like that. Because the cup of the Lord's right hand. God is going to turn this on you, Babylon. You're going to shame my people, but I will shame you. Look the rest of verse 16. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned into thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. In a figurative sense, Babylon, you're going to be drunk with the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, and then the shame will be on you. Your very vomit will be on you. It's not a picture we want to imagine. We don't want to envision someone with vomit on them. It happens. That's what, what God was going to do to Babylon. Continuing the fifth woe in verse 19. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. The fifth woe is to that of their false religion. Their idols. The fact that they would carve an idol out of stone or out of wood, but yet there was no life in the idol whatsoever. It would just sit there. What would their idol do for them? Absolutely nothing. Their false God. That's the problem with Israel in the north. They had given credit for their blessings to the idolatrous gods. And God warned them, and God warned them. That's what Amos is about. Amos chapter 4 tells us all the things that God did to try to change them. The punishments that he had sent, the desolation, the destruction, those things that he had done to try to convince them, but yet they still gave credit to their idols. Judah in the south had done the same thing, focused on idolatry. When God says the Babylonians are coming, it's not because of their God that they'll be successful. I am the true God. And then verse 20. As a triumphant final statement that God shares with Habakkuk and with you and I. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Absolutely, the song is to help I mean, this verse is to help remind us and the song is to help remind us that God is to be reverenced. We are to respect and honor Him, but this verse means more. Remember, Habakkuk is questioning God. God, why are you sending the Babylonians? Why are things happening to your people? 
We are God's people today. Do things happen to us today? No, we're not the same as Judah in the sense that we're going to be carried away into captivity. But is there a captivity that you and I must be cautious about? The captivity of sin. To turn away from God to serve some idol, covetousness, or focusing on something that I prioritize in my life that's more important than God. As a nation, as a group of people, will the church be carried away as a whole? No, but what about the individual? Should we not be alarmed and concerned that there's someone or something out there that's battling against us, that wants to take us away, that wants to mistreat us, that wants to make us feel that we're nothing, that we're low down, that makes us think that they've got the advantage over us because of the life that they live? Do we not sing in the song, Tempted and tried were off me to wonder why it should be thus all the day long, while there are others living about us, never molested, though in the wrong. Do you feel that way? I think that's a great verse from that song to remind us. That's what God was telling Habakkuk. Yes, a people is coming. Yes, my people are going to suffer. There's going to be a remnant that returns and they'll spoil. They'll get back the land. But never forget, God is in His holy temple. He is a living God. He cares about His people and nothing can move God. This verse is not just about offer reverence to God, but a reminder, God is in heaven and He's looking down on you and I and He knows exactly what we go through. He knows what we're facing. He cares about what we're facing. Let all the earth keep silence in awe that God knows the deeds of those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous and that He cares. God cared so much that He sent His Son. If you read other minor prophets, it always begins with the warnings and the problems, but in nearly every minor prophet, it ends with a promise. A promise that there was one coming that would deliver the people as they went back into the land. Of course, speaking of the Christ. God cares enough that He sent His Son to die upon the cross for you and for me that I don't have to worry about spiritual captivity. I don't have to worry about being spoiled or being ridiculed or made fun of or made to think that I am less than what God has made me, a peculiar people, a people after God's own heart. And that's why we come boldly to the throne of grace. In time of need, we know we have a Savior. We know we have a God that cares about us. Habakkuk was troubled and he questioned, why? Why, God? And God revealed to him, this is what's going to happen, but I always win. This evening, maybe something's troubling your life. Maybe you feel like it's a lose-lose situation. You look at the world around you and maybe they're like Babylon to you. If we can pray with you, pray for you, we would love to do so to spend time to talk to you, to help you work through your problems, to look to God's Word and see what answers He's provided. If you're not a Christian this evening, you're surrounded by the world and they're taking you away unless, unless you look to God's Word to see what does He want for you. He wants you to believe in Him and His Son. 
He wants you to repent of your sins, a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of action. I'll no longer live the way I lived before, selfishly, worldly. I want to focus my life and attention on Him. I want to do His will. Hear, believe, repent. Confess the sweet name of Jesus. Confess that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And be baptized and wash away your sins. Come out of captivity knowing God cares about you. He is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Please come while we stand and sing.